Hello to our loyal listeners. We are so proud and excited and honored to have been nominated by the Willamette Week as the best podcast in Portland. It would mean so much to us if you could take a moment of your time to click the show notes in the episode you're listening to right now. And there's a link right there. Click on that. You can go give us a vote. We would be so appreciative. Thank you so much for your time. The following episode contains descriptions of abuse, sexual assault, and homicidal violence. Listener discretion is advised. I like to use a knife. A, a gun is too too violent, too 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 noisy, but just fit my hand well. There are nearly 20,000 murders annually in the United States. Perhaps it's the weather, but the Pacific Northwest has become the notorious home of serial killers and bizarre crimes. We're here to discuss those murders, to try to understand the motives, respect and remember the victims, and explore the humanity of it all. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. And And this this is Murder in in the Rain. Good afternoon, Emily. Hey, Alicia. How are you doing today? Pretty good. How about yourself? I am very excited. We have a very special guest today. We are delighted to have author Diane Fanning here with us. She has uh, written over 14 true crime books and 11 mystery novels. She's been a featured consultant for 48 Hours, 2020, The Today Show, Deadly Women, Forensic Files, Snapped, basically everything I watch on every Sunday morning. <laughs> right. I'm sure I've come across you many times and not even realized it. <laughs> uh, Diane has also been honored as a nominee for Mystery Writers of America Edgar Award and has been awarded the Defender of Innocence Award from the Innocence Project. Wow. Yeah, which Congrats. I do want to get into later because I would love to hear about that more. Diane is joining us here today on the phone from her home in Bedford, Virginia, where she lives with her husband and her Sheltie dog, which you might hear every once in a while in the background saying hello. That's the the loudmouth one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. We're very excited to have you with us today and really appreciate you taking your time to talk with us about these cases that you're so familiar with. Well, I'm I'm delighted to be here with you and uh, I'll answer anything I can. Today's case is the topic of Diane's first true crime book, Through the Window. So Tommy Lynn Sells rides again. The focus of Diane's book, Through the Window, is a man who spent nearly 20 years of his life committing horrific murders across the United States. You'll often hear him referred to as the cross-country killer or coast-to-coast killer, While only officially convicted of two murders, authorities believe he had completed at least 22 murders, and the killer himself claims an upwards of 70 total victims. This type of serial killer is pretty high up on my scary AF meter for a number of reasons. If you spend a Google spiral on him, you're soon going to find out he doesn't discriminate on age, gender, location, skin color... Literally anybody could be his next victim. He committed rape, murder, mutilation, and his methods ranged from blunt force trauma with household objects to stabbing and slicing to squeezing people's throats with his bare hands. Today, we're talking about Tommy Lynn Sells. The people don't matter. It's, 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 It's the crime. It's, 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 it's the sensation of, of, of the blood. The rush itself is, is, is the high. 
So altogether, about how many you kill, the question is, and you think um, your answer is what? <laughs> See, you kind of sold me up in, 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 in a, a, wow, uh, I don't know. Uh -huh. You know, do the math. Uh, a couple, three year, four year, for 20 years. What, what does that add up to? 50 to 70, I, I'll, I'll go with that. Yeah, okay. Probably more. Uh-huh. Some of Sell's crimes have received a lot of notoriety, and yet there are those that had little mention at all. To outline some of his crimes he committed and really paint a picture of the sheer violence of this man, we'd like to share a few of these stories. Mary Bia Perez was a nine-year-old girl who disappeared from a fiesta event on April 18, 1999. Little did her family know that a frightening man was using the cover of a bustling and lively event to pull Mary away and end her short life. About a mile and a half away, he took Mary to an isolated area and raped this little girl before taking her life and leaving her body with the garbage that was scattered on the ground. While her body didn't offer clear clues on how she died, Sells mentioned that he choked her to death after waking from a booze-filled haze next to her partially clothed body. The Dardine family was made up of Russell Keith, who went by Keith, his wife Eileen, young son Peter, and their unborn daughter. The 1987 deaths of this family were gruesome, violent, and utterly haunting. After those around the family grew suspicious when no one heard or saw them, police arrived to a gory scene. Elaine had been bound and gagged, and lying next to her were the bodies of her children, three-year-old Peter and his unnamed and prematurely born baby sister. They all had been brutally beaten with a baseball bat. Keith was nowhere to be found, thus making him the most likely suspect. The following day, Keith's body was discovered laying in a nearby field. He had been shot multiple times, and his penis had been cut off. In the end, Sells was caught thanks to a brave 10-year-old victim, a survivor by the name of Crystal Searles. She was having a sleepover at a friend's house when Tommy snuck in through her friend's blind brother's room, crept into the room where the girls slept on a bunk bed. He sexually abused Crystal's friend Kayleen Harris, 13, and slit her throat. Kayleen died right before Crystal's eyes, but what he didn't expect was that Crystal would survive and be able to tell authorities who did this to her. It didn't take long for him to get caught and for his tirade of mayhem to cease. I'm kind of intrigued by the idea of that she happened to have a blind brother. Yeah. And like, he, was he following them or like? Yeah. What are so a little bit of background. He was an acquaintance of the family, apparently met at church and often went to that family for marital counseling. counseling. Oh, so gross. he had seen the girl before. He had been in the house. He knew, the, knew the brother was, was brother. blind. Oh, And yuck. Tommy apparently told authorities that he tried to get in the house other ways, but that the window was open in the blind brother's room, and he realized he was blind and thought, I don't have to do anything with him. He, I'm not leaving a witness. The list of Tommy Lynn Sell's victims is a long one, so it's not surprising that he is admitted to murder in and around Oregon. Two nameless victims are described by Sells. He claims he killed them in Roseburg, Oregon, and left their bodies somewhere in the heavily wooded area surrounding the city. This was during a time he worked in a family-owned lumber business in 1989. These aren't the only victims. We'd like to tell you a story about an Oregon college student that went missing in 1987. Stephanie Stroh was attending Reed College in Portland, Oregon in 1986. 
After taking a year off from school and spending nine to 10 months traveling through Europe and Asia, she decided to fulfill her dream of hitchhiking across the country, starting in New York City and heading all the way to San Francisco. I know I'd like, you know, let's warn our listeners, don't hitchhike. Don't do it. I mean, the one positive is Stephanie kicked this trip off with a friend, but that is just dangerous. I don't, do people do that still? Yeah. So like I said, Stephanie kicked off the trip with her friend and she initially bought a plane ticket to go to New York, kick the trip off and head out west. From what we were able to find, Stephanie sounds like she was a young, adventurous woman looking to live the most of her life chasing her dreams and adventure at every turn. At 21, she was living her best life and suddenly everything changed for her and those that loved her. Stephanie and her friend traveled as far as Salt Lake City together, but from there, Stephanie went onward on her own. During this long trek, she called home regularly and spoke to her mom, and her mom even plotted the trip along the way. So mom knew that she was, that her 21-year-old daughter was planning this and... She knew a little bit. She knew she was going to cross country with a friend. What she didn't know is that they were hitchhiking. I would assume she would probably try to get her to not do that. I would hope so. Yeah, I mean, I'm all about spontaneity and not having plans, but that means like, I'll grab this Greyhound bus or I'll get on the train, not just, well, here I'll I go. Hope someone picks me up and is going the right way and isn't a killer. Yeah, I think especially with how involved her mom was with her, I would assume that she didn't tell her on purpose. The last time Stephanie spoke to her parents was October 15th, 1987, when she made a phone call from the four-way cafe and truck stop in Wells, Nevada. She had called her parents to tell them she found a ride home and would be leaving the next day. The last noted sighting of Stephanie was by a hotel desk clerk at the Motel 8 in Winnemucca, Nevada. She was trying to book a room for the night, but the hotel was unfortunately full. She was last seen carrying a gray canvas suitcase and a pink purse with an orange sleeping bag. Then Stephanie disappears, never to be seen or heard from again. While in custody for other crimes, Tommy Lynn Sells confessed to killing Stephanie. This was a story he told to the Texas Rangers who were interviewing him. At the time of her disappearance, he claims to have been working for a roofing company in Winnemucca, the town where she was last seen. He was more than happy to recount her final day to them. According to Sells, he picked Stephanie up while she was hitchhiking in Nevada. During their ride, they pulled over and he offered her some LSD that he had with him and she happily took it. Moments later, Sells strangled her until the life she lived so fully was ended too early. In the back of the stolen truck that Sells had been driving, he found a large tub and some concrete. He confessed to having taken her feet and put them in the concrete-filled tub. He then left her in the truck bed overnight while the concrete hardened. That's very brazen. Did it say, like, had he gone somewhere now that he has this dead woman half put in I think he slept there. I think he was pulled off onto maybe, like, a tucked away road, stayed there while he rode out his high. That's ballsy. I I know it is. I think that's a telltale sign of the type of killer he was, though. He did it in the moment with what he had, and he didn't care. The next day, he took her body to an incredibly high-temperature hot springs and dropped her in, making it impossible to prove or disprove his claims because there would likely never be a body to be found. That is wild. I did not know that hot, accessible hot springs existed that you could just 
do that with. It reminds me of that volcano movie. is like Dante's or something. Dante's Peak or Volcano. They came out the same time. And you're either a Dante's Peak or you're a volcano person. I'm a volcano girl myself. Tommy Lee Jones, the tar pits. Yeah, you are. Anyway, I find that interesting. And I wonder like how many bodies are used or disposed of oh, in that Oh, it's like way. one of my favorite topics. I hope at some point we can cover one. Bog bodies. People throw bodies in a bog and they're mummified. They're like preserved. Police never charged cells with the disappearance or murder of Stephanie. In 2010, investigators stated they had reason to believe a different serial killer, Dale Wayne Eaton, was actually the one responsible for Stephanie's disappearance. Others believe that Sells was never charged in connection with Stoll's case because police didn't really believe his claims and a lot of his criminal activities were likely exaggerated by him. People are still looking for clues on Stephanie's disappearance. If anyone has information pertaining to Stephanie Stroh's case, please call Las Vegas FBI at 702-385-1281. <laughs> When you look at me, you know what hate is, because I don't know what love is. Two words I don't like to use is love and sorry, because I'm about hate. Like many killers, Tommy felt that his proclivity for terrorizing others was a product that had come from his childhood misery. At 18 months old, his twin sister Tammy died of meningitis. Soon after, his mother Nina sent him to live with his aunt Bonnie. Tommy spent two years living with his aunt, a time he reflects upon fondly. This was a time when his cousins Sandy and Kathy doted on him, likely the only time he ever felt safe and loved. However, he was eventually taken back to his mother, and Tommy's life began to take a turn for the worse. At the age of seven, he began to abuse alcohol. At the age of eight, a man entered Tommy's life who would begin molesting him on a regular basis. He plied him with attention and money and eventually began to rape him. By 10 years old, Tommy would begin to use marijuana in addition to alcohol. But ultimately, Sells was only convicted of the murder of two young girls out of his long list of victims. Something about the, the, the blade uh -huh. making a slice on you, seeing it pierce open, seeing it gap, and, 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 and watching the, 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 the sensation of it all. Maybe I came uh, addicted to that. He was sentenced to death for the attempted murder of Crystal Searles and for the capital murder of Kayleen Harris. In 2003, Sells pleaded guilty to the strangling of nine-year-old Mary B. Perez of San Antonio, for which he received a life sentence. Sells was executed in Texas on April 3, 2014, at 6.27 p.m. by lethal injection. He declined to make a final statement. Diane, thanks again for joining us. I had the opportunity to read Through the Window, which I found pretty illuminating. Normally, I would ask someone such as yourself what drew you to the crime genre, but I admit I actually went online and stalked you a little bit. So <laughs> I saw that you had a story from your childhood that you had a brush with someone uh, that was pretty scary. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I was uh, walking with my girlfriend through the neighborhood going up to a little community store. And we lived in an area that was part suburban and part rural. So you'd pass houses, and then you'd have a cluster of fields and cows. And then you'd have more houses. So we were going through one of the more barren places when 
this car pulled up and asked for directions. We both tried to explain to him where he needed to go. And he said, I'm not understanding. Could you come show me on my oh. map? Oh, my gosh. And you're how, you're how old at the time? Nine. I was nine when this happened. And I went up to his car, and he had opened the car door. And instead of having a map, he was exposing himself. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay, I didn't get that many details <laughs> online. Yeah. He latched on to my upper arm and started tugging on me. I was resisting as much as I could, but I was a pretty small kid, and so I I couldn't have lasted long. But just then, another car came over the hill and laid on his horn, and he let go of me and took off. Thank God. Wow. I'd been a big fan of Dragnet, and I knew exactly what Sergeant Friday wanted me to do, and that was memorize the license plate number. Yes. yes. So I did. And I uh, went home and told my mother. She called the police. The police stopped his car, and in the trunk of his car found evidence that he was responsible for the sexual assault and murder of an eight-year-old girl oh wow. a month before. Uh, and I was left with a couple questions. I was a curious kid. I wanted to know why me. Right. And I also wanted to know how could anybody do that. And, you know, that started me reading um, books that were really above my head and I didn't completely understand, but I read them anyway. Yeah, we're, we're the same. <laughs> and I'm currently in that situation. It's fine. <laughs> so then it was like decades later, I'm watching TV and there's this little girl, Crystal Searles. And she was just a year older than I was when she faced down a serial killer. And she's the one that ended two decades of murder and violence. She became instantly my hero. She did what I did times 100, you know? And I was just so amazed by her. I had to write her story. And that's how I ended up writing that book. So prior to that, were you uh, fully a mystery writer at the time? I had not written a book before that. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. So you're really inspired by her. That's so cool. Yes. And did you have a chance to meet her family? Uh, no, I did not. Uh, they were being very protective of her at that yeah. time because she was still very yeah, young. Understandably. And um, but I did speak with people who knew her and um, and got updates on her for a while after the fact. So I'm really curious about your process of writing the book. Can you tell us a little bit about how you jumped in? Did you start right away? Did you go straight into research? I'm, I'm really curious about that. I wrote a sample chapter of the murder scene. And I sent it off to an agent. And I've been trying to get an agent for two years. I've been piddling around with writing and uh, never was able to make a mark. But they say when you write, about something you're passionate about, it makes a difference. And so after writing that chapter, I had an agent within 24 hours. Wow. wow. And I signed with her, and then I decided um, I needed to talk to him if he would talk to me. At that time, he was in, he was off death, he was still a death row prisoner, but he was off death row in the Bear County Jail uh, waiting to deal with the Mary Bea Perez matter. And she, he uh, got my letter, and he said he would talk to me. So 
I thought, well, good. I found out later he hadn't sp- had a visitor for six months, so he was pretty uh, desperate for company. <laughs> and uh, the first time I talked to him, you know, it was a lot of, it was a little dance about money, and I was not going to pay him. I was not going to give him money. Then we had to go through the little dance about sex, and no, I didn't want to have dirty phone calls with him. <laughs> and and then we got down to brass tacks, and he started telling me a lot of stuff. And I, I must have talked to him more than 20 times, uh, both there in Bear County and then back when he was on death row. And sometimes it was really weird because all he was interested in, interested in was making me laugh and, instead of talking about the cases. So I had to keep steering him back. And um, then there were other times where he was more hostile and he would give me really graphic details that were hard to take, yeah. particularly with the Dardeen murder. That mm. was pretty bad. But the thing with him is oftentimes, like he did with Stephanie Stroh, he said he gave her LSD and she took it. Who knows yeah. what yeah. he did. He, he lied about all his victims to try to make them look like they were not decent people. Right? He did that all the time. But there was an interesting pattern in his behavior about these crimes, if he was telling predominantly the truth, the story you heard from him would be very fragmented and in bits and pieces that you'd have to put together. Um, One time when a guy uh, offered to pay him to confess to a crime that the other guy committed, he sits down and tells a story beginning to end perfect order, everything all together. That's when you knew he was lying. But I'll be honest, I would go to him about all sorts of crimes people ask me about. And most of them, he'd say to me, that's not mine. So he denied responsibility more often than he accepted responsibility. So I think there was a lot of honesty in what he had to say. Um, but he always embellished it with his own victim bashing. In your opinion, you know, walking away from your interactions with him, where do you feel he actually fell in his number of victims? I think there's probably more than 50. I mean, some of them, he doesn't know their names, so it's hard to pin down. Mm -hmm. And it left them, like, in the woods near Roseburg. And then another one is, like, a black man in downtown Detroit that he left in a dumpster. Well, that really doesn't give police much to go on when you're talking about a crime that's 10, 15 years old. Right. So, um, I, you know, there, there are some crimes where people in that area, the, the DAs and the investigators said to me, listen, he's on death row in Texas. He's most likely going to be executed why should we spend resources getting him another sentence? In your time, you know, having all that correspondence, as we, you know, we're starting out our show, and I've had some interest in reaching out to people that are imprisoned. Um, from your experience, what was that like, you know, having him go to execution? Was it you had heard all these horrible stories? So, you were kind of like, okay, see, ya. <laughs> you know, we're kind of better off with you going. Or was there a weird sense of 
you know, you had developed this relationship. Was there, you know, did you have issue with holding those boundaries at times or remembering, you know, the context of what your relationship was? Sometimes it was really difficult because the day that he kind of broke down and told me about the pedophile that his mother let him live with was a painful day. I mean, I I had tears in my eyes for that little tiny boy. It didn't make anything right about anything he did to anyone else as an adult. I mean, you know, he was an awful human being. But that little tiny boy, there might have been a chance for him if he'd been rescued when he was little. You know, who knows? It's kind of an interesting connection of his incidents as at those ages, you know, kind of similar age, eight, nine, shaped him into what he became. And then your incident at nine shaped you into what D- you have totally become different in way. a totally different path. Like, it is. Kind of amazing how that works. So how long how long in total were you speaking or corresponding with him? Was it over a few months, a few years? Years. Even after I wrote the book, because where he his head was at at the time I finished the book was he would talk to me, but he wouldn't talk to anyone else in law enforcement. He got all mad at them. So I had law enforcement people asking me to talk to him and private investigators and families. So... I was always going to him with questions after the book. So he said he intentionally took them to the wrong place. <sighs> and the spring that they took, he took them to was one of the ones that uh, was not so hot that it would actually disintegrate a body. But what he told me about where he put the body was a place where there are a lot of springs that they're too hot for anybody to get into. And he said that's where he left the body. And do you feel convinced by that? Like, do you believe him on that case? Pretty much. I mean, you know, I'm, I always have skepticism about most everything he tells me until someone on the outside can confirm something about it. But I tended to believe him with that because it all made sense. Right. Um, and... The, uh, I, I talked to a sheriff down there in that area where he said, yeah, those, those springs down there are lethal. You could boil alive in them. And that would be interesting that he would know that location. Like I go to hot springs. I don't know of any hot springs where it would boil you alive. And so if he's able to say like, I took her to this location and that is in fact what's there. That's really believable. That really kind of especially for someone yeah. who's lived in so many places mm-hmm. like I can't say I've known every city I've lived in really well to that point you know yeah. right and he you know he didn't know places very well I mean that he roamed through and killed in I mean he just roamed through right I mean usually what put him on the road and set him going other places is that he got angry at his mother or at his spouse And that's why he set off on the road, and he found somebody to kill. And then, add to that Winnemucca story, when he was in uh, Lawrenceville, Illinois, where uh, there was a 10-year-old boy killed, there was a woman at the bus station who sold him a ticket to Winnemucca. And that would have had him arriving in Winnemucca 
on the 10th anniversary of when he said he killed Stephanie. Wow. I just got chills. And he said he was something else. I mean, if anybody deserved the death penalty, he was it. But at the same time, you know, yeah, the world was a better place without him, but it felt really, really bizarre to know I sat and talked with a person who was executed by the state. So for anyone interested in learning more about the Tommy Lynn Sells case and their victims and the relationship that Diane had with him, you can check out her book Through the Window, and we'll have a link for that on our website. And in additional very exciting news, today, April 30th, your newest book, Death on the River, is being released. This is a very interesting case. Um, You start out with the Hudson River Valley is such a beautiful place, particularly this spot where uh, Benny Villafor lost his life. You've got a castle-looking old arsenal on a little island. And Benny and his fiancée, Angelica, were taking kayaks in April across the Hudson River onto this island. It was really very early to be kayaking on the Hudson River. The water was still very cold, and they didn't take any of the protective gear that they should have with them. It was a warm day, and I guess they just were lulled by the weather. At least Finney was. And then when they came back on kayak, a storm had rolled in, and Vinny never survived the trip across. And the question is, what did Angelica do? And what was her role in the case? Ooh, very intriguing. I remember hearing about this story on the news and watching it every day and just kind of, you know, waiting to hear what the answer was because it was very clear there was some suspicious behavior going on. When somebody's fiancé is missing, and they put up videos of themselves doing cartwheels. Suspicion is a natural end result. Yes. Yeah, it's a little telling if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> the Innocence Project Award, I'm, I'm a big supporter of them, and I was just curious what that award was. Well, when I was working on the book about cells, um, I heard this case on TV, and and honestly, I was very skeptical as the um, woman, Julie Ray, said that she was innocent, and her family said she was innocent, her lawyer said she was innocent, and I just thought, yeah, they all say that, but then the uh, prosecuting attorney made some statements that I knew weren't true, things like, No one comes into your house and takes a knife from the kitchen and kills you with it. Well, that's not true. I know Sells has done that on other occasions, and I know that other killers have done it too. It Mm -hmm. it happens. Right. And and he made another a number of statements like that. So I knew Sells was mad at the Texas Rangers. And I wanted him to not be. He didn't like the questions they were asking. And I wanted him to start talking to them. So I said, this is what the Texas Rangers are up against. Prosecutors who say things like this. And I 
told him about what that prosecutor had said. I didn't say anything about the prosecutor's name, the victim's name, the accused name, the place it happened, when it happened, nothing. He responded back to me and said, did that happen maybe two days before the murder in Springfield, Missouri? And darn if it didn't. And that's why when I wrote to him again, I asked him who told him about it. And he said, nobody did. And he got mad at me about that. But he didn't have access to the Internet. He didn't have access to television. So he couldn't have found out from the news that way. He knew about that crime. And he told, I went in to see him face to face. And he told me about that crime. And he said, there are a lot of people behind bars for crimes I committed. And I don't care. Oh, wow. So here's a woman getting a 65-year sentence for killing her own 10-year-old boy. And this man is telling me that he committed that crime. So I figured, the I can't contact the authorities because they're already convinced she's guilty. But I can put it in the book and write it in a way so that if he's jerking my chain, it'll just be part of his story as a false confession. Right. But if he's telling me the truth, maybe somebody who has more power and knows more than me can do something about it. Yeah, it gives them something to start with. Yes. Yeah, so I got that, got that out in the book. And suddenly I'm hearing from her appeals attorney. I'm hearing from the Innocence Project. And then ultimately the Center for Wrongful Conviction. Julie Ray got a new trial. She was exonerated in that trial. And she went through the process and received a certificate of innocence from the state of Illinois. So that certificate of actual innocence says that she should have never been arrested. She should have never gone to trial. This is wiped out completely. That's amazing. I mean, what a great honor for you to be able to do that for her, but what a huge burden to be given that information and not really... And to know there are more. Yeah, to know there are more, but like you used it in such a way, it's like, here's what I can do is I can write about it and what a difference that's... Yeah, I, I almost feel like, you know, this might have been my whole reason, the whole reason why I started writing true crime was so that I could uncover this. All right. Well, Diane, we can't thank you enough for taking your time to speak with us today and share your vast knowledge about this case. Um, we really look forward to reading all of your books and especially your I, upcoming release. I actually started reading it a couple of nights ago. It's good. Emily's the avid reader. I am. I'm like, I, I will I get through everything. one in a year. And she's like, I read three this weekend. <laughs> You're reading it at night? <laughs> yes, I am. I am like unscarable. It's really... It's really not great. My adult son could only read that book on his lunch break because he was living alone at the time. Oh, yep. my gosh. And it's written by his mom. And you're like, come on. <laughs> you can do it. Come but, on. Uh, I do have a question um, as we go. Um, what, on a personal note, what kind of things do you enjoy as far as true crime or horror or anything like that? Books, movies, TV, or She's what like, kind oh, of... I don't. Like, <laughs> romance <laughs> novels. 
<laughs> what kind of shaped uh, you going down, you know, besides your personal experience? You know, I grew up watching Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock Hour and his movies and all of that stuff. Um, where do you kind of find either inspiration or pleasure in what you watch or are entertained by? Well, you know, I, I do watch, um, you know, Forensic Files was a big favorite of mine. It's a good one. Um, and then City Confidential, I swear, that was a magnificent show. But now, you know, it's like, it's, I do so many of the shows, um, like Thursday, I just recorded seven episodes for Deadly Women for next oh, week. Oh, yes, I was watching that this morning. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been doing Deadly Women since their second season, and now... I'm recording the 13th season. It's amazing. Didn't know there were that many tacky women. Yeah, right? You're like, how many deadly women can there be? That's what we were saying when we're starting with like Pacific, you know, because we're focused on Pacific Northwest crimes. And we're like, oh, gosh, we're we're going to run run out. out. And we literally haven't left like our neighborhoods yet. (laughs) And we're like halfway through our first season. Like, I think we'll be okay. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's fantastic. And, you know, one thing I, you know, I also write fiction. And the current series I'm writing is set in World War II, and the main character is a female chemist who's at the facility that is processing the uranium that goes into her, the bomb that falls on Hiroshima. Ooh. Ooh. I Emily that. is intrigued. <laughs> I, love, I love writing fiction because I can kill whoever I want. <laughs> yes, fiction. Maybe I should start that career. <laughs> It's a cathartic release. Like, yes, I need, yes, to, yes. I need to go right after sitting in the traffic. Okay. <laughs> I need to kill some people off. Good. Diane, that was awesome. Thank you so much yeah, for thank talking you, thank with you. us today. Sure thing. And when you're, if, when you're doing your conclusion or wrap up, you find out you have any questions, feel free to give me a call. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so thank much. You. Okay. Great. Great. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Um, she's my new favorite. I want to call her every week. You guys, she's great. After those around the family grew specific, <clears throat> after those around the family grew suspicious when no one heard or saw fr- saw from. Oh my Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> It's so glamorous. Operator. Yes. I'm sorry. We don't do any of that stepfather stuff. That's real gross. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Lesbians. Right away. One moment. Oh, I didn't know. I thought you lost your place. I was trying to be helpful. I know how to read. What? All three of them tucked into their family bed. Family bed reminds me of like medieval times. We all had a bed together. I like period pieces. I'm super into that. And it, so it's time travel, crime and murder, and fancy gowns of yonder years. I'd rather die. But when he didn't expect... No, I didn't. Was I drunk? The spread eagle. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do it. I didn't do it. it to if you'd have seen it, if you'd have seen it, you would have been there. If you'd have been there, you would have done the same. Pot six, squeeze. Ah, uh-uh, sister, lip, lip shits. shits. <laughs> I did the haunted tour.
they they let you choose. There's like there's a couple of versions. Please teach but- me about history. If I learn, I'm getting my money back. My mood is elevated. Why you know are you I'm driving saying? on the wrong side of the highway then? <laughs> are you done? Uh-huh. Proclivity, proclivity. It was a play that took place in the 40s. It's called City of Angels. Uh, I played two awful. characters. One of them was in black and white. The other was in color. It was the worst thing. I it was an awesome play. I had good music. That's the kind of love and support that I need in my mouth, in my mouth, in my life, (laughs) in my mouth. (laughs) Got really mad at her and he goes, why don't you fuck off and keep fucking off all day? (laughs) And so we use that all All the the time. time. (laughs) He was sentenced to death for attempted murder of Crystal Searles and the Capitol Myrtle. (laughs) Fuck! This is like a time fuck! (laughs) Or to order horror? Fuck me. To order whores, call the porn operator. <laughs> mm. You're the sickest person. I can on do the with my eyelids too. I'm not gonna. Okay. Let's see if you can hear it. Oh. <laughs> Yarf. <laughs> Yarf. I had been a big fan of Dragnut. I had been a big fan of Dragnut. I had been a big fan of Dragnut. I can't say Dragnet. (laughs) (laughs) But then then you did. (laughs) That was good. Yeah, I do a really good chicken. Don't be angry about it. I do a good chicken. I do a a good compliment. I do a good goat, and I do a good whale. (laughs) Okay, that's disgusting. And then whale. Can you do an elephant? No, it's Keiko. Yeah, it does sound like it's it, it Keiko like the way. Nintendo ghost. If you know someone who is a victim of sexual abuse or you think they might be, please call the hotline 1-800-656-4673. The domestic abuse hotline is 1-800-799-7233. And if you know anyone that would need help with a mental health crisis of any sort, the number is one 800 Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Visit us at murderintherain.com. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 